Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Why do you pray? Why do I pray? I guess I pray because I believe that it's going to do something. Sometimes I just pray because I think I should. <laughs> because I'm a Christian and, and that seems like the right thing to do. To connect to God. It is part of my everyday routine of life. I try to pray with some regularity. I try to pray when things are changing around me. I pray for stability. I pray for understanding. I pray for a lot of things. When was the last time you prayed? And was it just for lunch? <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a perceived Christian good prayer life or do you get in a funk sometimes where you only pray for dinner and lunch? Oh, definitely. I lay in my bed at the end of the night and I'm like, wow, oops, sorry God. Like I just thanked you for my food. It's pretty shallow of me. I think my best conversations with God are like just quiet conversations throughout the day that I'm always in this constant, hey, talking to him like a friend. I'm not always um, kneeling. I'm not always in a posture that says, hey, this is prayer. Sometimes I'm just saying, oh, Lord, help me with this. Do you feel heard by God in your prayers? Sometimes. Yeah, usually, but not always, no. I think I actually hear God's voice more than the average person. <laughs> I know he hears me. I know he hears everything. He knows that I'm going to pray it before I even pray it. But sometimes I feel like he does, and sometimes I feel like he doesn't, in my humanness. And you have loss, and you have grief, and you have trials. And I think in those times, especially, you wrestle with being hurt. There have been definite dark times where, yeah, felt like he didn't care. And what do you do when you feel that, when you feel he doesn't care and he's not there? How do you get out of that? Sometimes I pout about it. <laughs> Throw a mini tantrum, no. But I guess I just persist. God answers prayer. We know that, we hear that, but we can even experience it. My father and I never had a good relationship. He's been in and out of my, my world for since I was seven. Um, near his deathbed, he, uh, he called to uh, have me visit him. And through reconnecting in that time, he received Jesus as a savior. And that was an answer to 30 plus years of prayers that I had given to my dad and even that his, his grandkids had, had been praying fervently because uh, they wanted to see Grandpa Gary in heaven. God always comes through. He, he is good. I feel like God is talking all the time, but we just talk at him and we just say, this is what I want, this is what I need, can you do this for me? And he, it's seemingly that he's not talking back, but actually we're just not listening. Uh, as you, your trust grows, then you see the answers come. They are there, and sometimes we miss them because we're looking for A and the answer is B. And in hindsight, we go, oh, 
God answered that so much better than what I felt the right answer should have been. I do often have times where I feel God's presence or hear His voice, and then I think I'm crazy for not praying because it does bring so much joy into my life. Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at uh, Center Street Church, those of us meeting here at Central Campus, as well as those uh, watching from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. And I also want to say hello to our online viewers as well. We are at the halfway mark in our summer series, and over the last few weeks, we have been exploring the questions of Jesus. The four Gospels reveal that Jesus was a master at asking questions. Humans ask questions because uh, we need the answers. If you have a three-year-old at home, you know this quite well, uh, they can ask an awful lot of questions because they're learning. But Jesus, being God, never asked a question for which He didn't know the answer, but they were intended for our benefit. I'm learning this summer that it is impossible to give a simple response to the questions of Jesus. You cannot give the typical teenager response. Did you have a good day? Yes. What did you do today? Nothing. That's not the way to answer Jesus. His questions make you to think hard and reflect. You have to dwell on the question. And the longer you dwell, the more lessons you can glean from those questions. Today we're going to look at a set of questions that Jesus asked in connection to the topic of prayer. At some point in our spiritual journey, every Christian has had questions about prayer. The well-known British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones summed up our struggle with prayer when he wrote, of all the activities in which the Christian engages and which are part of the Christian life, there is surely none which causes so much perplexity and raises so many problems as the activity which we call prayer. If we are honest, so many of us, including well-meaning Christians, have wondered at some point in their Christian life, does prayer really make a difference? If God is sovereign, why do we even need to pray? How come answers to prayer seem so inconsistent? By praying, do we change God's mind? How do I know I'm praying in line with God's will? Why do some legitimate requests go unanswered? How many times do I have to pray for the same request over and over? All of these are deep, pertinent questions, and I don't plan to directly address any of them today. And instead, we will look at the questions of Jesus on the topic of prayer. Perhaps when we reflect on Jesus' questions, we will find answers to some of our own questions and help with some of our own struggles in the area of prayer. I'm going to ask us now to stand as we read our text for today from Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. 
the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Lord, as we come to you today, we recognize our struggles and the questions that we have surrounding this topic of prayer. But we pray that, Lord, as we reflect on your questions on this topic, that it will bring clarity to us, that we will have a greater and a deeper understanding of your character, that it will have an impact on how we pray, that our prayer lives will be strengthened because we know and we believe that prayer is powerful. So come and teach us and minister to us in the power of your Spirit. We ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The success of our prayer life has not much to do with a prayer technique. It has little to do with a particular style of prayer or following a certain formula or saying the right words. But in order to be successful in your prayer life, you need to know this. Prayer is founded on the goodness of God. If you know the character of the one you're praying to, then I can guarantee you that you will have a powerful prayer life. Let me give you the context of our passage. Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. There's something about the prayer life of Jesus that captured their attention, that motivated them to make this request. In response, Jesus gives a condensed version of the Lord's Prayer recorded here in Luke chapter 11. And then he immediately expounds on the prayer through an odd parable. The parable that we read is probably one of the most misunderstood. When you hear this parable, you are tempted to come to the conclusion, in order to get what we want in prayer, we should be bold and persistent in our asking. While there may be an element of truth in this, it is clearly not the point of this parable or this entire teaching section on prayer. We assume that this man was being bold and audacious, that he knocked on the neighbor's door at an odd hour. He was persistent in his asking, and the neighbor granted him his request just to get rid of him. Now, if that is the case, how are we saying, if we pester God long enough, if we keep asking him over and over, he's going to get weary and give in to our request. And does that reflect the character of God? Will God ever say, 
I have to stop Ashwin because he has become a heavenly nuisance. He's driving me up the wall. He keeps badgering me with the same request over and over. Let me give it to him so I can get him off my back. Is that the point of this parable? No, not at all. Jesus is more interested in teaching us about the character of God than a prayer technique. And this parable sheds light on God's generous character, His eagerness to answer our prayers. The Bible was written to a specific cultural context. In order to understand the text, you have to look into the culture of the time without which we will miss the intent of the original writer. Now, there is no greater example of this than the parable we are looking at today. Now, for polite Canadians, the idea of knocking at a neighbor's door in the dead of night asking for favors is unthinkable. Now, I pray none of you have a neighbor who rings your doorbell at midnight and demands a midnight snack. You know, we simply cannot understand this parable with our 21st century eyes. But Jesus' audience connected with this because some of them might have experienced a scenario like this. It was rare, but not totally inconceivable during Jesus' time. First of all, hospitality was given great importance in the ancient Middle East, and it is still so in many parts of the world. Growing up in India, I watched my grandparents and parents show incredible hospitality to our guests. And they regarded this actually as one of the highest virtues. If someone came home for lunch, my grandmother would insist that they also stay back for dinner. And when you serve food, you give them more than they could possibly eat. They have to be stuffed. Otherwise, you have failed in your responsibility as a host. So to not take care of your guest is one of the greatest insults you can level at them. When you read this parable, also take into consideration there were no phones, no text messages to inform that your uncle who lives in the neighboring province is going to visit you on this date. And add to the mix, there are no Walmarts or superstores around the corner to shop and fix a quick meal for this unexpected guest. Now, people lived on day-to-day -day essentials, and bread was made every day at home. So here you have an unexpected visitor you have nothing in the pantry to offer him, no leftovers, what do you do? Knock on the neighbor's door, even if it's midnight, because of the urgency of the situation. And that's what's happening here in this parable. And you need to know, verses 5 to 7 in the Greek text are in the form of a question. So Jesus is actually raising a question here through this parable. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. If you have nothing to offer your guest, it is very shameful. When you study cultural anthropology, you refer to European cultures as guilt-based cultures. However, the Middle Eastern culture is an honor-shame culture, as is the Asian and South American. In a shame-based culture, they don't use the word shame like the way we do here in the West. Shame doesn't mean that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Rather, it is used in the sense of uh, not wanting to lose face. It's trying to guard your reputation. 
to avoid shame either to your name or to your family is a central cultural value. In a shame-based culture, external appearance is everything. So the most important question you will ask before you do anything is, how will people look at me if I do this? The person in our parable has a real conundrum because an unexpected guest has shown up at the door in the middle of the night and he has nothing to offer. So he's trying to save his face and goes on to knock on the sleeping neighbor's door. Now look at the neighbor's response. Verse 7. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed I can't get up and give you anything. Uh, most houses during Jesus' time were single-room houses. The room had two parts, a lower level and a raised upper level, like a platform. And it is in the upper level where the entire family slept, not on beds, but on sleeping mats. So if the father of the house were to wake up, he cannot just flip on the light switch, but he has to physically light a lamp or a candle and all of the commotion would wake the entire family, including the little kids. So the neighbor is not too thrilled by this late-night intrusion. He is openly expressing his dissent. Now, if I have to bring this parable home to our level of understanding, let me give you a modern-day illustration that will help you to better connect with this text. Now, let's say your wife is pregnant, and she's due any moment. It's 2 a.m. in the morning, and she says to you, oh, I'm having labor pains. And before you could react, she says, oh, no, my water broke. Now, you run to the garage, get into your car so you can go as quickly as you can to the hospital. Now, to your utter disbelief, your car wouldn't start. Your battery is dead. Now, what do you do? You're panicking. Your wife is in labor. She can't think straight. So you just run to your next-door neighbor, Tom, and ring his doorbell. Uh, Tom wakes up from his deep sleep. He's in his PJs, looks out of his window, and he knows that uh, this is an emergency situation. So he comes down, and he opens the door a little bit, and he asks, what's the matter? And you say, Tom, I really need some help. My wife is having a baby. She's in labor. Uh, we have to rush to the hospital, but our car wouldn't start. Can I please use your car? Now, if Tom was a good neighbor, he will offer to drive you to the hospital. Or at the very least, he would say, here's my keys, just take care of your wife, hope everything goes well. Now, if Tom was a real jerk, now I feel for some of you who have neighbors like that, and he would say, hey, this is late night, my family is sleeping, I can't wake them up, sorry, I can't help you. That's what's happening in our story. Maybe I've exaggerated it a little bit, but I want us to wrap our heads around the urgency of the situation. And Jesus' point is, it would be unreasonable for the neighbor to refuse to offer help when his friend is in an emergency. The key verse is verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. The word shameless audacity 
It's a single word in Greek, and it has been translated in some other Bibles as uh, persistent or bold, and that is actually not the right translation. In fact, this is a unique word. It occurs only once in the entire New Testament, just in this place. And the word literally means without shame or without embarrassment. And one of the challenges we have in the original text is it is not clear if the word for shameless applies here to the petitioner outside or the sleeper inside. And almost all of our translations use this word to refer to the one knocking at the door. But my interpretation is, this is not referring to the one knocking at the door, but it is actually referring to the neighbor who's sleeping. There are other scholars who agree with this interpretation. Uh, Professor Daryl Johnson, who taught at Regent College, points out, even if the guy inside hates the guy outside, he's going to get up and give him as much as he needs because he does not want the story to go around in the village the next morning that he did not help in a time of emergency. So the primary motivation to help is not friendship or love, but it is the avoidance of shame. I'm not going to damage my reputation. I'm not going to hear the people from the village say, why did you not help him? Shame on you. So the point of the parable is, when you are knocking at your neighbor's door in times of an emergency, your Neighbor is bound to help you, even if not for friendship reasons, but in order to save his own face. It is unthinkable, it was unthinkable for the audience of Jesus that this neighbor would refuse to give bread to the one knocking, just as it is difficult for us to imagine a neighbor who refuses to loan his car for you to take your wife to the hospital in an emergency. All right, what is the takeaway here? What is Jesus trying to drive home here. Is God, like this grumpy neighbor, reluctantly responding to our cries for help? No. This parable is not a comparison, but it's a contrast. God is not like this grouchy neighbor, far from it. Jesus is saying, if a sleeping neighbor would respond to an urgent request for help for the wrong reasons to save his own face, how much more God would meet the urgent needs of his dear children? The focus is on the character of God. I told you at the beginning of the message, prayer is founded on the goodness of God. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. If a neighbor would render help to protect his name from being tarnished, how much more God would honor his name when we ask him for help? Now, have you noticed this phrase, for his name's sake, occurs several times in the Bible, especially in reference to God? Now, here's an example in the famous Psalm 23. Look at Psalm 23, verse 3. He refreshes my soul... He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. God will do it for His name's sake. God will not allow His name to be dishonored. The glory and reputation of God is at stake, so He will act on behalf of His people who represent Him. Now, I love the phrase the guy used when he knocked on his neighbor's door. Look at verse 6 in the New Living Translation. 
a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. I have nothing. See, this is not a parable about hospitality, but it is a parable about prayer. When the guy says, I have nothing, he is expressing his desperate need. And when we come before God with the same attitude that we have nothing, that we are empty, we are helpless, and desperately depend on Him for help, Jesus is reassuring us, God is eager to help you in your time of need. The parable speaks of God's willingness to act on our behalf for His name's sake. If a human being would go to such an extent to ensure his name is not being slandered, how much more God would go to honor his name. Now look at what Jesus says next. It flows out of this parable, verses 9 to 11. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, if you think of prayer as a crowbar that pries open the hand of a reluctant God, then you have a wrong image of prayer. When you pray, you are not manipulating God to do something. You're not forcing God to act, even though He is unwilling. Reformer Martin Luther said it so well, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it is laying hold of His willingness. The reason we pray is because God is eager to answer us. That is the stimulus for prayer. The words ask, seek, and knock are in the present continuous tense. So it should be translated, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And the words receive and find are also in the present tense. So those who keep on asking are receiving. Those who keep on seeking are finding. Something always happens when we pray. When you are in right relationship with God, when you're living a life that is honoring to God, your prayers don't ever hit the ceiling and just return back. Every prayer that is wised out in Jesus' name accomplishes something. Prayer is a powerful, effective tool that becomes a channel for God to respond to our heartfelt needs. It is ironic that we see prayer as a passive activity. You hear people say, we have done everything, now all we can do is pray. But Jesus' teaching on prayer redefines how we see the spiritual discipline. Asking, seeking, and knocking on heaven's doors are clearly not terms associated with passivity, far from it. Do you see the passion and the urgency here in our text? When was the last time you prayed like that? Prayer is not passive, it's dynamic and powerful. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying in your mind, then how come 
my requests don't receive the same level of response. And here I totally relate with you. And I don't always get what I pray for. I ask and I don't receive. Many of my prayers have gone unanswered. But before we go to our personal experiences and allow that to color our text, I want us to focus on Jesus' questions here because I believe that brings a lot of clarity. Look at verses 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus' illustration here may seem far-fetched, but it's clearly making an important point. Jesus presents this question to all parents. Don't we love giving good gifts to our children? Don't we love to meet the needs of our sons and daughters? You know, almost every morning, I give breakfast to my two older boys, eight and five years old. And they usually ask me for cereals. So we have a few different kinds. They choose what they want. I put them in a bowl, pour milk, and give it to them. Now, how about for a change tomorrow morning? I put some pebbles on the bowl, pour some milk, set it on the table, and say, hey, boys, I have some delicious breakfast for you. I've never done it. It hasn't even occurred in my mind, even though it will save me a lot of money. <laughs> or imagine your child asks in the morning, can you pack me some sandwiches for lunch? And they go to school. It's lunch break. They are hungry. They take their lunch box out, and they have a sticky note that says, enjoy your sandwich and a smiley face. And when they open the lunchbox, packed in between two slices of bread, is a live scorpion. Now, which parent would do that? We human beings, even though we are sinful, would never do that to our kids. Can you imagine your father in heaven doing that to you? In Matthew's gospel, which is the parallel passage of our text here, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus encourages us to ask. Asking God for something is not unspiritual. It's what children do. We ought to bring our needs, our desires, our challenges, our frustrations to God. And we come before God with the attitude of a little child, with the spontaneity of a child. And God would do what a loving father would do. Now, does that mean we can ask whatever we want and we will get it? Is this a blank check offer and we can just fill the amount? I have four children, and I took time this week to pay attention to all the requests that I received from them. Now, it is a very long list, so I can't go through all of it today, but here are some examples. Daddy 
Can you read for me? Answer, yes. I'll be happy to read for you. Daddy, can you play with me? Sure. Let's go to the front yard and play cricket. Daddy, can you buy this for my birthday? Mm, okay, I'll buy this for your birthday. Daddy, I spilled the juice. Can you please clean it? And no problem, I'll take care of your mess. I was actually amazed to see how many of their requests were granted. And I'm not just saying this to make me look good. I'm serious. I said yes to many things that they wanted. But I didn't say yes to everything. Because some of what they requested were not good for them. It was almost bedtime when my oldest said, Daddy, can I play a video game? Answer, no. Why? It's not good for you. If you don't go to sleep, you're going to be cranky tomorrow morning. Your body needs rest. So no, you cannot play. Daddy, can I have your Diet Coke? No, it's not good for you. It's not good for me either. I don't know why I'm drinking it. <laughs> but I'll give you lemonade instead. Sunday afternoons, especially after I'm done preaching, I'm pretty exhausted, so I like to take a short nap. So at that time, they ask, do you want to play with us? Answer, no way. Maybe that's why Jesus referred to us as evil. <laughs> In every case, I filtered my children's request and gave them what was good and refused to give them what would potentially be bad. You know, if I, with all of my imperfections and deficiencies, know how to give good gifts to my children, then how much more my God, who is an embodiment of perfection and love, delights in giving good gifts to His children. Prayer is effective, not because we use the right formula or use the right words. It is effective because of the character of the one we are praying to. Our God is a loving, heavenly Father who knows what is best for us. Ask. If it is good, He will give it to you. You can fully rely on His wisdom. Sometimes we ask things that look good in our eyes, but our heavenly Father sees from a completely different perspective. He's all-knowing, he knows what is best for us. He knows what fits with the plans that He has for our life. Ruth Graham, the wife of late evangelist Billy Graham, once said, God has not always answered my prayers. If He had, I would have married the wrong man several times. God gives us the right to ask, but He reserves the right to determine what is best for us. Today is not a complicated sermon. I'm intentionally making it simple because that is the very point of Jesus' teaching around prayer. Jesus doesn't answer all of our questions on prayer, but he gives us the invitation to come to a God who loves you deeply and has the best in mind for you. Because the purpose of prayer at the end of the day it's not what you can get from God. It's building a relationship. 
It's deepening an intimacy, growing in our understanding of God's character. It's seeking first his kingdom and his will for our life. That is why one of the most important activity you and I can ever engage in is when we pray. Now, did you notice something? Here in Luke's gospel, our text says, how much more your Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Instead of good gifts, you have the reference to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Holy Spirit of God is the very presence of God made available to us. God doesn't live in temples or buildings. He lives within us by His Spirit. This indwelling presence of God Himself is the greatest gift you can receive from God. God the Spirit gives us divine enablement. Whatever circumstances we may be in, we will never ever lack provision of God's Spirit. You will never have to seek for the presence of God and return empty-handed. For every time, he gladly gives the Holy Spirit a measure of himself to us. Now think about this. When we approach God with our needs and challenges, what more do we need than the help of the Holy Spirit? He is the divine helper who comes alongside you. You never have to face any challenges in your life in your own strength. Because the Holy Spirit of God will walk with you and guide you every step of the way. When you're in bondage to a certain sin, present your request to God. For all you need is His Holy Spirit to set you free. When the monotony of life hits you, when you're battling with discontent, all you need is the Spirit to replenish you and give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. When you're weak and you think you cannot take another step, you need the empowerment of the Spirit so you are able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When you have a, a troubled relationship, you bring it to God. He gives you the supernatural love of the Holy Spirit and it flows from your heart. The Holy Spirit is God's best spiritual gift to His children. How much more your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let me close with this. There are two kinds of ways to motivate us to pray. One is to put you on a guilt trap. And Jesus doesn't do that. He chooses the other alternative, he directs us to the character and the goodness and the willingness of God to respond to our requests. When you know God's goodness, when you know that He is your heavenly Father, that He is eager to do what is best for you, that is a great motivation to pray. It's the lyrics of the great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus Goes. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Rest in the assurance 
And when you come before God with your needs, he hears you and he wants to do what is best for you. I'm going to ask all of us to stand right now. The questions of Jesus speak to us today. They were not just for people 2,000 years ago, but they come alive. And Jesus continues to use questions to challenge us, to encourage us, to help us to think differently. I want us to close our eyes right now and let me present his question to all of us today. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Many times we struggle in our prayer life because we have distorted images of God. And this question challenges that very aspect. How do you perceive God? Is he your heavenly father who wants the best for you? The quietness of this moment, I want you to ponder over that. Maybe your earthly experience, color, the way you view God. And this is a challenge for us, not to allow that to happen, but to see God for who he is, how he longs to reveal himself to us. And as our minds get filled with this picture of the reality of the God we serve, I know that it puts everything else into perspective. So let's maintain a moment of silence right now. And after that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, you brought the greatest revelation to us when you taught us to call God as our Father. We cannot think of any other human relationship that describes your character like that of a father. And thank you, Lord, for being a good father, a father who takes care of his children, who provides for all of their needs, who ensures their well-being a God who delights in giving his children good gifts. I pray for people here today who are asking. We pray that you will grant them what they truly need, that you will give them the desires of their heart. And above all, you will grant each one of us a fresh infilling of your spirit an enablement that will help us to cope with all of the challenges of life, all of the uncertainties of life, an empowerment that will help us to live out our life's calling and to fulfill the plans and purposes that you have for us. So grant us, we pray, O oh Lord, a fresh anointing of your Spirit that as we leave this place, our burdens will be lifted up and we will go in the assurance and strength that comes from abiding in you.
And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 